ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Wednesday the 31st of January. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, the cleanup continues. Residents across Queensland assess the damage from torrential rains amid warnings of further downpours. And Elon Musk's neurotech company claims it successfully implanted a brain chip into a human, but is it a step forward? That's a big deal. Um, that is a monumental achievement, honestly. But the real proof in the pudding is going to come from where are we at six months, 12 months. If the device continues to function well on that time frame, the landscape has changed. First up today to the economy and the outlook for interest rate cuts by the end of the year has been given a major boost with inflation slowing to a two-year low. Official figures this morning show the pace of inflation in the final quarter of last year dipped significantly under the weight of aggressive interest rate rises. I'm joined now by the ABC's senior business correspondent Peter Ryan. Peter, what are the numbers and what do they tell us? Well, hello, Sally. Uh, Good to be delivering some good news for a change. (laughs) The official consumer price index, as you mentioned, has come in much lower than expected. Inflation rising by 0.6% in the final quarter of last year and significantly running much slower at 4.1% in the 12 months to December, uh, lower than the 4.3% forecast and down from the 5.4% in the prior September quarter reading. So the best inflation readings in since the dark days of the pandemic. Now, the biggest rises have been in housing, up 1%, alcohol and tobacco, up 2.8%, insurance and financial services, up 1.7%. So higher rental costs, but also labour and building material costs are also rising. Some more good news about underlying inflation. Um, that strips out volatile items like food and petrol. And trimmed meat inflation, as it's known, is down to 4.2% from 5.1% in the prior reading. Important because this is a reading that the Reserve Bank pays a lot of attention to. Peter, the Reserve Bank Board meets next week. What will these inflation figures mean for their discussions? Well, uh, this is certainly uh, a lot of food for thought for the Reserve Bank Board, but don't expect the RBA Board to declare the inflation emergency is over by any means because even at 4.1% on that annual inflation reading, it's still well above where the Reserve Bank wants it, which is right between 2 and 3% over time. But slowing inflation does open the door to a discussion about when a rate cut might be appropriate. And earlier today, the International Monetary Fund said central banks around the world shouldn't wait too long before cutting rates given slowing inflation and also the need to provide relief from the pain that households are feeling from those aggressive interest rate rises. And we've had 13 since May 2022, which have been a big factor in the much higher cost of living. So, Peter, magic question. What are the chances of a rate fall? 
Well, we'll get a bit of an idea when the Reserve Bank Board meets next week on Monday and Tuesday. There could well be a bit of a rethink and maybe some discussion as to whether that November rate hike, the last one we had, uh, was necessary. But we can expect the cash rate to almost certainly stay on hold at 4.35%. Money markets see a 97% chance of rates staying as they are. Also, the Australian dollar is lower in late morning trade at 65.8 US cents. Uh, as rate cut speculation accelerates. Peter, thank you. That's our senior business correspondent there, Peter Ryan. Well, the latest figures for inflation have been released after a tough year for many Australian consumers who've battled cost of living increases and interest rate hikes. But retailers predict more tough times ahead. Angus Randall reports. It's been an expensive few months for families. First Christmas and then back to school costs. In Adelaide's Rundle Mall, shoppers are counting their pennies. Bills and everything just seems to be going up and not the pay, so. Have you found yourself spending a bit less over the Christmas period? Probably not really personally, much to my detriment. I probably should have. We actually cut down on family presents and decided to do like kids only presents rather than whole family presents. Uh, yeah, much less this year actually than previous years, so we, we cut down by about 25%. Yeah, presents and food. Figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics released this week showed a modest increase in retail sales of just 0.8% in December compared to the same time last year. It's subdued for the festive season and a significant drop on November's figures that were boosted by Black Friday sales. The Australian Retailers Association's Fleur Brown is expecting a tough few months ahead. It is a sort of batten down the hatches year. I think we certainly, uh, you know, in discussions with retailers and also in, in, in terms of setting expectations, looking at, you know, the, the, the latter half of this year before we see any sort of bright side in, you know, consumer relief. The flatlining spending has already claimed one victim. Vacuum seller Godfrey's went into voluntary administration yesterday after nearly a century in business. In a statement, the business blamed high inflation, rising interest rates and falling consumer spending. Jordan Mumford is the Assistant Secretary of the Retail Workers Union in South Australia. This sort of part of the uh, retail sector is being particularly hit and that's because consumers don't have you know, discretionary capacity. People are buying the basic goods. They're filling up the car at the Bowser and buying food to eat. But, you know, people are putting up with a broken um, vacuum cleaner maybe for for months or years because it's just not at the top of their priority list. And, of course, that's having um, a negative impact on companies like this one. The inflation and retail spending figures will be just some of the markers discussed by the New Look Reserve Bank Board in its first meeting of the year next week. From February, the bank board will meet eight times a year for two days each. Most economists are predicting the interest rate will hold before being cut in the second half of the year. Fleur Brown from the Retailers Association is hoping we've seen the last rate rise for a while. Look, it is a pivotal moment, not just because it will affect spending very directly, but also because it will affect confidence. And by confidence, I mean both consumer confidence and business confidence. So whatever the decision is, and we're very hopeful that it will be at least, you know, a hold decision, there will be a ripple effect for the rest of the year. It kind of sets the tone, what the expectation might be uh, for this year. ANZ economist Adelaide Timbrell says the retail data is encouraging for anyone dreading another hike on their mortgage. 
The retail sales figures are really supportive of the Reserve Bank not having to hike. We're seeing that real transmission of monetary policy into households where it's leading to households being more careful about their spending. When households are more careful about their spending, they're less likely to say yes to price increases from businesses and more likely to walk away from price increases. When you're more likely to walk away, businesses are more likely to not increase their price even if the cost of business is going up. And that is what the Reserve Bank wants. They want to see prices stay as stable as possible. The Reserve Bank meets from Monday and will announce any changes to the cash rate on Tuesday. That's Angus Randall reporting there. Well, the flood risk continues in Queensland from the state's southeast to the northwest, with stories continuing to emerge of the serious damage that's been caused so far. Hardship payments have been announced for residents as assessments are carried out across the southeast, where flash flooding put about a metre of water through some homes and badly damaged some businesses. In the northwest, major roads have been cut and communities isolated, with authorities closely watching the skies and river levels. Stephanie Smale reports. Ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee is still hovering over Queensland's northwest, delivering storms and rain to an already soaked region. The flooded Diamantina River has swept through the Blue Gila Hotel at Kainuna, and owner Matthew McBride is facing a big mop-up. Well, it was about three foot through the pub, right through the pub, the kitchen, all the accommodations going under. And yeah, it's gone through everything. Yeah, I reckon, mate, there was about 420 mil that we measured over three and a half days. He's not insured for flooding, but he says help will be on the way soon to clean up the heritage-listed pub. We've got a lot of helpers coming up in the next week or so. As soon as that water goes down, we've got a heap of mates coming up to give us a hand to get it going again. So hopefully it's going in the next three to four weeks. The unpredictable rain paired with wet catchments mean authorities are bracing for flooding in many parts of the state. Overnight, 25 people were evacuated from the town of Warra on the Western Downs, about 300 kilometres west of Brisbane, due to creek flooding. Steve Smith is the Acting Commissioner of the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. Our concerns are really um, with any significant rainfall and how quickly those catchments will react. They'll respond very quickly because they're saturated. You know, small amounts of rain will will create a, a response from those creeks and rivers. He says the northwest of the state is used to a drenching at this time of the year, but authorities won't be complacent. That weather system uh, is um, predicted to be moving towards the Gulf and and may bring um, increased intensity as it moves towards the Gulf, up into those Gulf communities. So uh, we're very conscious and monitoring that closely. Rick Britton is the mayor of the Bullier Shire that spreads south of Mount Isa and along the Northern Territory border. He says the unpredictable weather means there's still parched conditions in the west of his patch and flooding in the east of it. People west of here, mate, they're probably hoping that it goes up the Gulf and then comes back down along the Territory border. That'd be uh, that'd be really good because I think the people east of us on the, around that Hamilton area, they're, they're probably, well, they're starting, their toes are starting to grow together. They've had between 10 to 15 inches of rain there in the last five or six days, so they're probably... <laughs> they would be hoping that it eases up and we've got people in the West hoping that they get a little bit of it. But Rick Britton says locals have been preparing for the wet season for months and those in the most isolated areas have about five weeks of supplies. Oh, I've been ringing around this morning just to see how everyone's travelling, 
especially those in the flood. And they're they're coping. They're they're all good. They they said they got it all under control. So yeah, mate, it's pretty resilient out here. We we've long time. You've just learnt to that you've got to look after yourself. No one's just going to knock on your door and help you. So. A huge clean-up effort is underway in the parts of the southeast that got smashed by flash flooding. Chris Campbell talked to the world today as he took stock of the damage at the Sanford Bowling Club west of Brisbane yesterday. He's spoken to reporter Elizabeth Cramsey today as a big crowd of volunteers works to clean up. Inside the clubhouse, it's all been cleaned out. It was just a wreck yesterday. But the floors look to be intact, which we're happy about. Um, apart from that, the whole place looks like a wreck outside the clubhouse because it's all muddy and dirty. Anyway, we'll slowly get there. And what's the damage bill looking like at this point? Oh, that's really is hard for me to say, but um, I dare say it could run to half a million dollars, I reckon. No problem at all. And, of course, we have no insurance because we're right on the bank of the river. Damage assessments will be carried out in flooded homes and businesses across the southeast today to work out who can get hardship payments. That report from Stephanie Smale and Elizabeth Cramsey. You're listening in to The World Today. Overseas now, and Israeli forces disguised as medics and civilians have stormed a hospital in the occupied West Bank, killing three Palestinian militants. One of the men was a member of Hamas, who the Israeli military has claimed was planning an attack inspired by the October 7th massacre, while the two other members were members of Islamic Jihad. Palestinian authorities have condemned the attack in Janine, describing it as a massacre in a hospital. But the United States says Israel has the right to bring terrorists to justice. Gavin Coop reports. Chanting and grieving, a crowd of mourners carries a man's body on a stretcher through the streets of the West Bank city, Janine. He was among three Palestinian militants killed in an undercover Israeli operation at the nearby Ibn Sina hospital. Surveillance footage showed the Israeli soldiers disguised as civilians and medical staff making their way through a corridor with rifles raised. Wizam Spahat, the Director of Public Health in Janine, was among those who witnessed the raid. The barbaric way that they broke into the department and assaulted the nurse, all this is documented and recorded in our videos. We also have the medical record of the martyr, one of the martyrs who was assassinated today. He'd been admitted to the hospital for a while and had been getting treatment in this department. He'd been admitted in the hospital and that is documented, contrary to what Israel claims. The Israeli military claims the men were hiding in the hospital and that one of them, identified as Hamas member Mohammed Walid Jalamna, was about to carry out an attack. It says a pistol was recovered during the operation. The man's father, Walid, condemned the raid. You might be surprised, or I might be surprised, or anyone who respects life might be surprised that a hospital is being raided. But really, nothing this enemy does is a surprise anymore. They bomb hospitals, universities, schools, as well as mosques, so I'm not surprised. It's still a heinous crime. But the Israeli military's chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, defended the operation. We do not want to turn hospitals into battlefields, with patients on the right and doctors and nurses on the left and terrorists in the middle. 
but we are even more determined not to allow hospitals in Gaza, Judea and Samaria, Lebanon, above ground or in tunnel shafts and tunnels under hospitals to become a place that is a cover for terrorism and one that allows terrorists to stash weapons, to rest, to go out to carry out an attack. And where necessary, we enter even the most complex places to eliminate terrorism, to harm terrorism, to strike terrorists. And while the Palestinian Health Ministry also condemned the hospital raid, the United States has been cautious in its response. US State Department spokesman Matthew Miller told reporters hospitals should be protected, but Israel has a right to bring terrorists to justice. We want them to conduct their operations in compliance with international humanitarian law, we would generally say that we don't want them to carry out operations in hospitals, but under international humanitarian law, hospitals do lose some of their protections if they are being used to, uh, for the planning of terrorist operations, for the execution the, of the terrorist operations. The actual hospital building does, but I mean, going in disguised as you know women and, yeah. and doctors so, and, and, and whatever is is something different, and then going in and and picking out people in particular rooms and particular beds. And killing them seems to be something different. So, again, uh, not able to offer an assessment without knowing all these facts. I said some of the facts that have been presented by Israel are that one of them was carrying a gun and that they were planning to carry out or to launch terrorist operations. So you would have to look at all of those facts to make a specific assessment about this operation. But in general, we do want to see hospitals protected. It is important that no civilians were harmed in this operation. Tensions have been building in the occupied West Bank as fighting continues in Gaza. That's Gavin Coote reporting there. Tech billionaire Elon Musk claims his neurotech company Neuralink has successfully implanted its first brain chip in a human. The initial goal of the brain-computer interface is to allow people to control computers using only their thoughts. Similar trials are happening around the globe, but Mr Musk's long-term plans have some neuroethicists worried. Rachel Hayter reports. The patient, Elon Musk says, is recovering well. A device the size of a large coin has been implanted on their skull with ultra-thin wires threaded through to the brain. The product from the company Neuralink is called telepathy. The idea is to be able to control a smartphone or a computer by thinking. Dr Laura Cabrera is an associate professor of neuroethics at Pennsylvania State University. She believes the device could transform the lives of people with catastrophic injuries. There are clearly patients that would benefit from having a technology that allows them to communicate back to the external world. So people with paraplegia or quadriplegia. When Neuralink got approval from the US medical regulator, the Food and Drug Administration, last year, they started recruiting people with cervical spinal cord injury, or ALS. But Dr Cabrera is worried the tech entrepreneur has more dangerous long-term ambitions. Elon Musk has not been shy in saying that he wants his company to be able to go beyond just medical applications. On his social media platform X, Mr Musk writes, imagine if Stephen Hawking could communicate faster than a speed typist or auctioneer. That is the goal. He wants us to be able to interface with AI and just sort of be able to engage with the streams of data that are 
constantly hitting us, quite science fiction-y stuff. Sally Addy is the author of We Are Electric, the new science of our body's electrome. She says similar implants are already being trialled on patients around the world. A company in Switzerland enabled a paralysed man to walk just by thinking. Electronic implants on his brain and spine, wirelessly communicating thoughts to his legs and feet. It's very small. It's limited to one very tiny area of the brain. It reads from a collection of neurons there, hundreds, maybe a couple of hundred. What he wants is something that will read from all over the brain and just tap into way more of our 86 billion neurons. But Mr Musk would need further FDA approvals for that. Professor Tara Spires-Jones is president of the British Neuroscience Association. And while the Neuralink trial is in its early stages, she's hopeful it will help patients with movement or speech problems. One of the studies I read could only accurately interpret 50% of the words someone was thinking. So uh, it's not perfect yet, but it's part of the direction the field is going. So just this idea that understanding the brain and neuroscience and bringing that together with artificial intelligence and computers is really going to, I think, start making a difference in people's lives. Bradley Greger from the Brain Centre at Arizona State University describes the successful surgery as charting new territory for brain-computer interfaces. That's a big deal. Um, that is a monumental achievement, honestly. Um, but the real proof in the pudding is going to come from where are we at six months, 12 months, 24 months. <laughs> if the device continues to function well on that time frame, now the landscape has changed. And telepathy has a substantial clinical trial period ahead before it hits the shelves. That's Rachel Hayter. Finally today, scientists are urging communities to get involved in efforts to slow the spread of Indian minor birds. The invasive species was first introduced to Australia more than 160 years ago. Since then, the Indian miners have taken hold in many parts of the country, often displacing native birds and creating a nuisance for humans. But researchers say steps can be taken to reduce their numbers. David Sparks takes a look. The call of the Indian minor bird has become common in much of Australia. Not to be confused with the noisy miner, which is a native bird, the Indian miner is causing problems. Rodney Guest is a farmer north of Griffith in New South Wales. They will push other birds out of the area. They actually kill birds in nests or fledglings in nests to, just to get rid of them out of the area. These birds just kill other baby birds just to get rid of them out of the area. He says they've only turned up in his area recently. In the last 12 months, I'm 40 k's north of Griffith and I've had two at my place. I've noticed them around, some around Griffith, but more south of Griffith, like Wilbrigi, down Colliambly, down that way. They seem to be moving up from the south and out west. Lyle Greaves is the Conservation and Biosecurity Analyst for the Invasive Species Council. They're a really invasive species that uh, drives out our native birds. They compete with them for nesting sites, nesting hollows. Uh, they attack the young of native, native parrots. They also compete for food um, and they're a nuisance for agricultural production. They, they foul up uh, you know, feed sites um, and cause amenity uh, destruction as well. It's important not to confuse the Indian miner with the native noisy miner. So the native miner is actually a, a native honey eater. Um, they've got a grey body. 
uh, and uh, sort of pink uh, gray legs. Um, whereas the common or Indian miner, it's got a chocolate brown body and yellow legs. Do we know when and how the Indian miner got here? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, they were deliberately introduced into Australia, similar to the cane toad. Um, it was in the 1860s in Melbourne, and the idea was that they would control insect pests in market gardens. And uh, yeah, it was a deliberate introduction. Lyle Greaves says the Indian miner has been spreading to new areas. So lots of towns in New South Wales are starting to see them arriving. Uh, they we, we believe that they follow the highways, so they're an urban species. They follow human settlement. Um, they tend to not go into the native forests so much, which is which is good. Um, but yeah, they, they follow human settlement. They live in rural areas and they love towns. That's where the good news comes in. The Indian miners' preference for towns and urban areas gives us a better chance of controlling their spread. He says one action group in Canberra is getting excellent results. We're seeing really good outcomes um, in Canberra, the Canberra Action Group here. Um, they have shown that they've reduced the numbers of miners from the second most common bird in Canberra down to the ninth most common bird. So there's some really good outcomes that people can can actually do. The methods to, to reduce their numbers, though, it's say in Canberra or anywhere else, for example, is that about trapping them and killing them? Yeah, so look, reducing their number is, is a combination of all of these things, but but the primary way that they've seen success is through trapping and uh, humanely euthanizing uh, the birds. I think most people are going to be curious, how, how do they humanely euthanize minor birds? Uh, the most humane ways, the RSPCA approved ways would be through uh, CO2 gas, would be the, the most humane way that puts them to sleep. Um, other things people can do is, is you know, make sure there's no pet food, no no easy sources of food. Um, try to retain natural bushland, um, you know, species of flowering plants that native birds prefer. Lyle Greaves says anyone interested in helping out can search for an action group in their local area. That report from David Sparks and ABC Riverina's Sally Bryant. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Take care. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When masked men clad in black tried to demonstrate in Sydney on Australia Day, police were quick to use the powers they have to get rid of them. They were neo-Nazis from across the country. So apart from making a scene, what do these men want and what are they capable of? Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.